Welcome to Happy Talks with Dr. Alice and Donovan. Dr. Alice Fong is a holistic naturopathic doctor and founder of Amour de Soi Wellness. And Donovan Jensen is a software engineer and founder of HowToHappy.com. Together, they're out to cause more happiness in the world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Happy Talks. My name is Dr. Alice, and this is my awesome co-host, Donovan. And today, I have a special guest, Adam Aronovich. He is a mental health practitioner and researcher working in with Amazonian traditional medicines. So please welcome Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here and sharing a little bit of my work. Yeah, we're excited to hear about that. So let's just dive in and why don't we start by you telling us a little about your story and what led you to doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think like, first of all, I just want to say like English is not my first language. So okay, no worries. Uh, I do make an effort to uh, open my mouth a little bit more than usual so people can understand <laughs> when I'm articulating things. Mm-hmm. But at any point, you can ask me to just slow down or <laughs> try a little bit more. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I come from the, from the field of mental health. I worked for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in psychiatric hospitals, working with people um, with psychotic diagnosis. And for a few years, I did that. And I mean, very long story short, at some point, I realized that I really did want to continue help people. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't super fun with the institutional approach, mm-hmm. how we treat, uh, I mean, the whole approach to mental health in the West seemed to me not ideal in the sense that it's based on both, a, you know, the for-profit medical model that doesn't necessarily always incentivizes uh, mm-hmm. individual and collective benefits, mm-hmm. but also just the limits of it. Yeah. So... After a while of doing that, I decided I wanted to go back to school and research, basically like finding like different ways or different approaches to address uh, human suffering mm-hmm. that may not be present necessarily in like Western institutions. Mm-hmm. And I went traveling. I traveled for a few years. I spent time in different countries, uh, looking at more traditional cultures and how they approach uh, health and well-being, human suffering. Uh, just questions, you know, about what, how sadness is experienced in different cultures, what does anxiety mean in different parts of the world, what is madness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from India to Peru to Mexico, like just different cultures. And uh, not surprisingly, I did find that actually many of the things that we think are universal are actually very Western. And not all people all over the world live their health and well-being in the same ways. And that these definitions do change and perceptions do change. And then there's different ways in which people uh, not only diagnose, but also treat uh, these things. Mm-hmm. In the last five years, I've been in the Amazon rainforest working with Amazonian plant medicines. Uh, I'm sharing a lot of space with indigenous tribes there who have very different conceptions of what a person is, uh, mm-hmm. what well-being means, uh, suffering and so on. So that has informed my work a lot. And now I'm pretty much in the stage of writing my doctoral dissertation based on that research, uh, hoping to bring a little bit of that wisdom from more traditional cultures uh, that have different worldviews and different cosmologies and different ways of 
conceptualizing, diagnosing, and treating mental illnesses, uh, I think that we can learn in the West to offer better care and other options for people. So that's kind of like in a nutshell, <laughs> very, very compact resume of that. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And I'm sure there are many, many points that we can dig into. I think maybe the first one that I'd be curious about is sort of, you know, if you're doing a whole PhD on it, it's probably going to have to come at a very high level. But what are some of the differences that you see between, you know, some of the different places you've been or, um, you know, if, if the bulk of your work has been focused on sort of the, the Amazon, Amazonian cultures and whatnot? Um, maybe you can focus there or it sounds like you're broadly traveled, but be curious what some of the differences you see are. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the main differences is that in the West, most of the uh, mental health care that we have is symptomatic. Uh, we tend to treat the symptoms as opposed to, to the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. This is something that we don't really know very well how to do. And also there isn't, there aren't many incent- incentives to really do that i mean the way that i mean psychiatry for example the way that psychiatry is set up as part of the medical industrial complex has an incentive to help people to some extent Mm -hmm. but still keep them as long-term clients so there's like more of an incentive to treat symptoms rather than root causes Mm -hmm. of many of the diseases and in many ways also like pathologize more and more aspects of the human experience which may not necessarily need to be pathologized yeah, mm-hmm. so, I mean, with, with every new edition, we have the DSM in the West, which is kind of the diagnostic manual, you know, which is pretty much like the Bible of like different diagnoses that a person can get. Like with each edition, it expands. You know, so pretty much anybody can find themselves in one or two or three categories, depending on their, you know, their needs. So mm-hmm. a, big, a big part of what we're doing is that we're increasingly pathologizing uh, more and more aspects of what it means to be human. And many of these things are not necessarily pleasant, but doesn't mean that they're pathological either. Yeah, they just mean that that's the part of the wider range of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, like grief, for example, right? like a person experiences like a heavy loss, like a close family member or somebody that they love that passes away, and there's a natural process of grief. Uh, but increasingly that grief gets pathologized. So now, you know, like you can get prescribed antidepressants for it and other tools that may not be the best approach to allow that person to actually process mm-hmm. the grief and complete in, a, in the healthiest way possible that grief. I mean, there's other aspects of it. You know, like the pathologization of childhood that we're experiencing all over the West with increasingly more common diagnosis of ADHD and uh, the proliferation of medication for children who seem to be healthy other than the fact that they're not really inclined towards a particular model of education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in as, just to give you an example from, from fieldwork, I mean, if you go to the Amazon, it took me quite a long time to, to explain to, to my Amazonian teachers when I, when I talked about anxiety or when I talked about depression, mm-hmm. for me, it was kind of like self-evident. It's like, well, Everybody knows what depression is, right? Everybody knows what anxiety is. But it took me quite a while to actually understand that we didn't share the same language because mm-hmm. they didn't really know what depression was because in their, in their understanding, I had to translate things, you know, in terms mm-hmm. that were more graspable. Like, oh, no, we're not, you know, depression is when a person is like really, really sad, but not, not like just sad, like really sad 
uh, also like apathic and you know like mm-hmm. we when a person like i need to like, come with metaphors to explain yeah. depression and they're like oh yeah we get it it's just sadness you know like a person is really sad you know like well i mean how do you treat depression how do you treat sadness are two very different things mm-hmm. yeah in, in in the west we think of depression mostly as a brain disease we say, oh, well, you know, a person is depressed because there's an imbalance of neurotransmitters in the brain. And the best way to treat that is we need to uh, give them a drug that will increase the level of those neurotransmitters so the person will stop feeling as sad. That's mm-hmm. one way to go about it. Yeah. Um, in the Amazon, they don't really resort to medication as much because one, they don't really have access to all of those things as mm-hmm. we do, but also because in their worldview, when a person is very, very sad, the first thing that they do is that the community uh, embraces them, right? Like they, they, they have a very, they have a much less individualistic outlook mm-hmm. on things. They're like if a person is very sad, they don't immediately default to say, oh, like that person is sad because something is wrong with them mm. or something is wrong with their brains or something has happened. They're like, oh, that person is sad maybe because their families are away or they don't they're not being like held enough by their community or what we need to do is just include them more in our activities and make sure that they're eating so you know like some of the women of the community will make sure to make food for them every day uh people will go and talk to them entertain them it's a much more communal active participation in that person's health because the basic understanding in these sort of communities is that health and well-being are not necessarily an individual responsibility they're a collective responsibility yeah and everybody in that community is responsible for the well-being of each other Mm -hmm. so there's much less of an incentive to individualize uh, and pathologize these experiences but rather uh, there's much more incentive to mobilize the community to help that person yeah Mm -hmm. Anxiety is very similar. Anxiety took me a long time to explain anxiety. Like by the end, uh, by the end of it, we come, we, we came to an understanding that anxiety is just uh, exaggerated worry. Mm-hmm. Like the, the way that I would explain anxiety, like that person just worries too much, and he's worrying too much about things that perhaps he shouldn't be worrying about because it's useless to worry about those things. Right. It's just like fantasy scenarios mm-hmm. that are neurotic, right? But we don't really have control over it. Mm-hmm. So for them, like, well, what, how do you help a person who is experiencing too much worries? You know. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think the thing in the West also, like, because we tend to individualize diseases so much, we often also tend to ignore the context. Like, mm-hmm. like, they're like, oh, like that person is just experiencing anxiety, so we need to medicate them. Um, but you know, like, people don't get anxious just because they get anxious. A lot of us get anxious because of the structures that we live in. You know, we get anxious because Perhaps we're working three different jobs and we are not really able to pay off our student debt or we cannot really pay rent or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're anxious because we're kind of like holding with our nails and teeth to a job that we don't really like because without it, we cannot really pay our bills. So there's many kind of like structural, contextual mm-hmm. uh, pressure points that uh, exacerbate anxiety and exacerbate depression mm-hmm. that are not necessarily only individual responsibility but they're embedded within uh, social structures and they're embedded within cultural systems and they're embedded within socioeconomic systems, mm-hmm. right? And these are the things that we don't often look at, you know, like, oh, like maybe our socioeconomic model 
actually does have an impact on how people perceive themselves and worry about things. And, um, you know, like we are depressed for all sorts of different reasons. You know, like in our generation, we also have to take into account existential and environmental factors. Mm-hmm. You know, because one of the main things that, in, that indigenous people uh, are very clear about, again, it's not only about the interdependent nature of the human community, but also they're very well embedded within their environment, mm-hmm. right? They don't think necessarily justly as individuals, but they think as individuals, they are inhabiting a particular stretch of land. Mm-hmm. So all of the creatures that inhabit that land, whether it's the trees and the animals and the birds, they have a very strong awareness of that interdependent nature, right? Like yeah. when you think about hunting, right? like we, we know indigenous people hunt, obviously in the Amazon hunting is kind of like the main source mm-hmm. of protein. Um, but hunting is not something that people just do for, you know, you don't, you don't wake up in the morning and you just go hunting. There's ritual involved in hunting. There's a lot of taboo involved in hunting, right? Can I I just like summarize, like, I want to fully like grasp what it is that you're saying and like, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm following with you. Kind of what I'm hearing is that like in these indigenous Amazonian cultures is that they utilize their community. Whereas in Western cultures where like individuals, I got to figure it out on my own. I got to like, like suffer in silence, I think is, is a common thing that we do, or it's like, it's weakness. If you reach out to people or, or go to a therapist or things like that, but it sounds like it's not so stigmatized in, in like asking for help or support, or it's just kind of like, what you do it's there's not really much much um resistance towards like having your community support you when you're going through moments of sadness or or extreme worry is that what i'm hearing yeah i mean that's that's definitely a big part of it mm-hmm. yeah like the the stigma is definitely a, a big one um but again like you know like there's many aspects of being human again that get kind of like lost in the noise, you know, within like this hyper individualistic ethos of the Western world, right? Where every, almost every human relationship at some point gets commodified to some extent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and many of the things that are usually or have been historically been done in community are now um, compartmentalized. And now they're experts that do that and external people that you pay to go to Mm -hmm. so they can provide a service but in traditional cultures that's still part of what the extended family or the community does Mm -hmm. right like you sit around the campfire and you have a heart to heart with somebody and that's a therapeutic relationship right you like they don't necessarily think of like oh i need to go to some expert uh, or some therapist or some doctor and tell them my problems Mm -hmm. or my worries because i have like my extended community who can mm-hmm. do that and that's something that we have progressively lost mm-hmm. for different reasons what are when you rely on your community for your your mental support and your your health and well-being like are they just there to to listen to your concerns and issues or are they giving like advice or wisdom like what what's happening that helps that individual that's kind of in that suffering state feel better i guess i'm curious yeah i mean i, I think the main medicine is not necessarily what they say or mm-hmm. what kind of advice they offer, but just okay. the connection in itself, right? Yeah. Like the empathy, the mm-hmm. just like the humanity of it. Yeah. Like that's the main thing. Right. Mm-hmm. I could I could see how that's 
that is healing in itself. I think just having human interaction and connection is so important. And I think, and even though in Western culture, we have all these, all this technology and these devices to connect us, I feel like we've progressively become less connected on a human to human level with more like authentic, authenticity and depth. Um, and, and that, that seems to be like a, a missing in our culture, I think a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is exactly the, the, the main piece, I think, yeah. that I'm trying to bring um, to the conversation again, like, because we become hyper-professionalized, but oftentimes that comes at the cost of the actual intimacy between humans, like that, 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 that human connection that brings forth, you know, the empathy, the, the actual like, hey, I see you and I, I care for you and you matter to me, you know, beyond this paywall, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. beyond the service that I'm providing for you, that you're paying for me, there's some, something deeper. There's like a human, there's an inherent human connection of care. Mm-hmm. That is politics of really caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's okay if you don't have an answer to this, but I would be yeah. curious, you know, you know, we've kind of talked over the problem, right? Which is, or, or at least a, an opportunity, whereas there could be a lot more community involvement um, kind of in the Western medicine to get people more support and maybe rely less heavily on medicine and some of these things to try to blunt some of the experiences. I'd be curious what you think are some of the, the steps or opportunities for uh, opening up some more of this um, in you know Westernized societies, because uh, culturally, I, like we've been talking about, I don't think it's uh, a super um, strong piece of the culture. So I'd just be curious what you think were some of the, the opportunities to, to move things or what we can work on. And if you don't have answers to that, that's fine. That's kind of a uh, ambush question. No, it's okay. I mean, so you said it's not a particularly strong part of our culture. You mean like the connection? Yeah, just just in the R, R being the United States, right? Um, but yeah. also like a lot of Westernized countries. Yeah. Um, it's just a weaker piece of the culture culture like um so so for example if someone's depressed uh you may have one or two very close people and you know this is a very generic example but you may have one or two very close people who who try to help a little bit but then it's not going to be long before they go okay you should go out to you know like you were talking about some sort of specialist you should pay for the help so i'm curious if you see opportunities or like ways or like a, a program we could build or like something like what could we do to kind of uh either as individuals like be more available for other people or as a community start uh, trying to like build up these connections? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a million dollar question. Um, I, don't, I don't have, I don't have like very specific answers but I do have some ideas. I think um, we have gotten to this point for a particular reason which is like following through almost to the last conclusions of a very hyper-individualistic ethos mm. that has been kind of like the, one of the ideological bases of the West for many years, right? And the glorification of the individual has also resulted, as you say, in the erosion of our social bonds and the erosions of communities, um, the reduction of tribes and extended families to nuclear families, which are more often than not broken nuclear families. So people really, for the most part, don't have many people in their lives to rely on, as you mentioned. People are lucky for the most part to have one good friend 
or two people that they can actually like have intimate conversations with. And that's, that's a very pathological social situation. Uh, humans are social mammals. Our brains are wired towards community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like our social brains require like that kinship, require that connection, require that social interaction, like the intimacy mm-hmm. and empathy of like a larger group of people than what is provided for us nowadays. Mm-hmm. In, in the Western world, we're going through real epidemics of loneliness. When, when scientists, when social scientists try to point, point out where are the main risks to public health from a mental health perspective, the first thing that often comes up is loneliness. Mm. Yeah, loneliness is a better predictor of almost every disease, mental and physical, yeah, than things like obesity, for example. So some governments are already starting to take action in a institutional level about like really considering loneliness as an epidemic that requires intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, in England, I think like a couple of years ago, uh, the prime minister, I think it was Theresa May, so it was maybe three years ago, uh, she named a member of her cabinet to be the minister for loneliness of the UK. I think that was like the first instance that I heard of of an actual member of parliament, like being a minister for loneliness. Many European countries very quickly followed through because it was as soon as it was very relevant, not mm. only in the UK, but all over the West. So I think, you know, there are like public health interventions and like other government approaches are doing that, but that obviously is just one aspect of it because the real thing is always the grassroots aspect of it. What are people doing in order to like rebuild and recreate communities? Mm-hmm. And there are different movements. I mean, there are different intentional communities popping up in different parts. And even like just, I think like younger generations are like figuring out, uh, like even in urban environments, kind of like different ways in which they can co-create like more community-based lifestyles where you can actually like rely on each other. And you can see this like a lot in places i mean just from my experience like in in, in the west coast yeah, in the u.s like if you go to play like san francisco or oakland like there's like different groups of people who are like oh you know what we're gonna go and like organize like a neighborhood uh association where we can like mm-hmm. create events and hang out and kind of like recreating that old lifestyle of kind of like European street parties and communities where mm-hmm. you actually get to know your neighbor and you're not just like moving into a building where you're co-living with strangers that you never need to know except if you're in the elevator or somebody for some reason like not somebody because you're making too much noise but actually intentionally like getting to, to know the people that you you know sharing life with mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that I am seeing more and more like with younger people in certain like urban nuclei when people are like much more interested in like, hey, like, you know, we were born into this hyper individualistic mindset, but actually we do, we are creating that connection. We are creating that community. So let's find ways of actually making that happen. Festivals are a great way to find that this, the allure of many festivals that people seek learn is because even if it's just a temporary utopia of seven days or six days or five days, that's a very good example of what can be created when a group of strangers come together with explicit intention of connecting in a deeper level with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience comes from wellness retreats. This is part of what I was doing in the Amazon. I was facilitating workshops for kind of like a very well-known retreat center in the Amazon. 
And it is really uncanny uh, to experience, you know, I mean, we, I would receive a group of 24 people, uh, complete strangers, and in a matter of a few days, just by sharing, by opening up and sharing like vulnerably and authentically about their struggles and their issues, and their hopes with people they never met, uh, there's some magic that happens when that is done in a controlled, safe setting. And people, there's like this sense of communitas that arises, like, oh, mm. you know, like my suffering doesn't have to remain private. There's other people out there who are also struggling. And, you know, when there is also like a mutual uh, commitment to really enact the reciprocity and that mutual responsibility of saying like, hey, I know that you're here because you're suffering. I'm here because I'm suffering too. And we're going to help each other by the end of that retreat, whether that's 12 days or nine days or 20 days, then people live there as a family. Like mm-hmm. the, the bonds that are formed between people are really, really, really uh, fantastic. And like people meet afterwards, people recreate that environment. It just, for the most part, it's just because it gives people uh, a taste of what it can be when you actually meet a group of like-minded individuals who have a common goal that are really committed to share that mutual responsibility for each other's well-being. Mm-hmm. So there's different environments that can give a taste for what that is, but ultimately the responsibility for creating that in permanent spaces is really uh, ours, you know, all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that because I, I know just firsthand with um, some of my experiences, I, I did a AmeriCorps program like so long ago um, after I completed my bachelor's degree and uh, I remember there was like one event it was kind of like around the campfire type of a a feel but we were just all strangers just thrown into a group and we were just given the opportunity to go up and cheer a little about ourselves and you know maybe uh, 10 people in, like someone just decided to just be super, super vulnerable and share some really, really incredible things, which is profound in front of a group of strangers. And that shifted the energy for, for everyone to start, like created the snowball effect where just within that one evening, we could feel a lot more connected. And it's, it was just a beautiful experience. And I've had a similar experience with, um, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of the Death Cafe. It's like an international event where people just like a group of strangers meet in a cafe or a school or a church or wherever to just discuss the topic of death, which is obviously a naturally deep, intimate type of topic that isn't like in your everyday conversation. And I love them because it just, you know, I know it seems like a morbid topic, but I love them because it created like instant intimacy and connection within like a span of you know 30 minutes to an hour and and I love that (laughs) experience and I'm like wow I wish there were more opportunities like that um in the U.S. or or something similar Mm -hmm. memento mori remember that you too will die that's a beautiful (laughs) meditation Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so do you have any recommendations for you know people that are feeling in the U.S. that are feeling like depressed lonely, um, anxious, and they don't necessarily have community right now, or they don't even know where to begin, like seeking out community support, would you have like any recommendations of where to start? That's a great question. I mean, the U.S. is particularly tricky because there's Mm -hmm. not many public places where you can actually meet people 
beyond kind of controlled environments or paid activities. That's part of the kind of like that's ingrained in the economic system. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, there's still a lot of possibilities, you know, like there's, there's meetup groups, for example, where you can find like-minded people who share similar uh, interests and then uh, go and meet up. Yeah, there's a lot of support groups that are online. And I mean, online is not necessarily the best substitute for the actual oxytocin and mm-hmm. you know, intimacy of a real connection, but it's a very good place to start mm-hmm. uh, to find people who are like-minded and like, maybe some, create some other connections. I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys in this podcast are, I mean, I don't know what your stance is on like psychedelic medicines, mm-hmm. but that is something that in the Amazon, is, I mean, that's kind of, part, that's kind of like the central component of many of the mm-hmm. plant-based medicines that mm-hmm. indigenous people in the Amazon work with. And that's something that I, all, I recommend always with a caveat that it needs to be done really carefully. Yeah. Um, but it is one of those opportunities in which that door of possibility for community opens up, particularly when these are done in a controlled ritual setting. That's the kind of that's the kind of experience that can really break down the barriers of isolation mm. and allow people to see beyond our protections and uh, layers of defense. You're like, oh, I mean, I see you, you know, beyond all of those layers of protection and defense mechanisms that you built over the years to protect your soul, I see you mm-hmm. and I love you for it. And, you know, that's kind of like an instant recognition. Mm. Uh, so those experiences are very powerful, but obviously uh, they carry, they need to be done carefully. And in the US, they're not legal everywhere. So that's something that needs to be said. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I could, I could, I mean, that makes sense in that it would help, you know, I think, uh, Americans are very guarded um, emotionally. <laughs> so to just, you know, be so vulnerable or, or um, share their, their dark secrets or thoughts is not necessarily easy or, or maybe it just doesn't feel safe for them. It's, so it's, it's like removing those barriers makes, makes sense or, or having some assistance, <laughs> whatever that might be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one, one thing that I, that I can speak of as a man. I mean, again, like this one is really only like a men issue, but I do think there's many men groups that are now becoming more and more prevalent, which mm-hmm. are particular, which are facilitated and geared particularly towards kind of like a reawakening mm-hmm. or a reimagining of what like a next stage masculinity can be. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of that does draw on the fact that as men, we don't often we're not often like socialized in a very healthy perception of what masculinity men- means, um, particularly when it comes to emotional literacy. Yeah. Um, and me included and many other people, maybe with the younger generations a little bit different, but I do know like with me and mm-hmm. my group of peers and so on, like it does take an intentional effort to become more emotionally which is an essential component of mental health to like really learn to discern and give ourselves permission to to express and experience things like sadness for example i mean it's kind of like a cliche right like men don't cry like boys don't cry whatever well no we do cry and like we do need spaces in which we can re-experience that and re-socialize ourselves to actually be fully emotional beings and not just fragments of 
beings that don't really feel or don't really know how to express healthy emotions. Mm-hmm. So men's groups are popping up in different places. That's something that I recommend for men who are looking for mm-hmm. community and an opportunity to really learn how to reconnect with parts of ourselves that maybe have been suppressed because our culture doesn't really allow as many spaces to actually experience that in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really um, is something that I also have had to spend some time walking through is just sort of this experience of uh, how to deal with emotions correctly, because I think, or not correctly, but in a in a useful way, because I, I used to I used to think um, kind of what you were talking about, like, oh, you should never express emotion. And really what it was rooted in is this idea of like, oh, I don't want to have these big displays, right? I don't want to throw, mm. I don't want to get so angry. I start breaking stuff. I don't want to get so sad. I just cry in the middle of public. I don't want to get so, um, what I, you know, whatever other emotion that I'm having these big displays. And it came across to me as like, okay, so just bury that stuff all the way down. And I know for me, um, you know, it really helped to learn that like, okay, the emotional aspect is useful. And there's a point to it and it's part of human experience and it's something that we need really uh you can experience these emotions without without having these huge displays right there are ways to like feel sadness without just being uh, um you know pouting in the corner for six months and not yeah. talking to anyone and crying and not moving and if you want to cry if you feel that bad and then that's part of it that's totally great but it made a big difference for me to learn that one piece. So I just kind of wanted to throw it out here, which is, um, you know, it's not about like shutting off all the emotions. It's about finding ways to process and live with them and then react to them in the way that you want, whatever that may be. Um, anyway, going back a, a couple steps, uh, you mentioned psychedelics and I would be curious what sort of, um, you, you said you did some like work with them there. I'd be curious what sort of um, transformations you've seen or what sort of interactions you've seen people have with them because I know there has been some promising research on using them to, to help fight some some things like depression and whatnot. And then there has been a long period of it being very, very outlawed in the United States at least. And yeah. then a more recent period of, of some more uh, research and studies starting to come back into light. So I would be curious to dig a little bit more onto that aspect of your experience and background and just hear a little bit more about what you've seen. Yeah, so I mean, my, my doctoral research is precisely on the therapeutic potential of a brew that is called ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is the center or at least one of the main components of many different Amazonian medical traditions. Right? It's, a, it's a mixture of primarily two plants that has been used for at least many centuries in the Amazon rainforest and still is uh, a very big and important part of Amazonian uh, cosmologies. And ayahuasca is psychoactive or psychedelic in the sense that it is a very embodied experience that is very multidimensional. And the phenomenology of the experience is something that is very unpredictable. So it can take many shapes and forms depending on where that person is at. Um, so it can be like, you know, like we've been talking about like emotional awakenings. That's one of the mm-hmm. common experiences. Like ayahuasca uh, can very well like facilitate that emotional awakening. 
for it's very useful for people who are in complicated grief processes for example mm. uh, people who are rep repressing grief or unable to connect with grief or for some other reason like not really being able to complete a healthy grieving process this is one of the uh, research projects that I was involved with that actually we have uh, papers already published in, in kind of impact journals uh, the therapeutic of ayahuasca in treating grief so I'm using this as one example and yeah and you know so ayahuasca can very can often facilitate for that person uh, an emotional opening to be able to connect with that grief or to process that grief in a way that is uh, beneficial so you know like the emotional component uh, is one thing there's another component which is more epistemic which relates to how we process uh, information or how we acquire knowledge about the world which is something that i think is shared by many psychedelics you know i mean you kind of go oftentimes hear that cliche like oh psychedelics will open your mind or psychedelics will kind of you know expand your awareness i mean those things are true in the sense that psychedelics oftentimes do provide uh, a different perspective or a different outlook on things hmm. that allows our minds to process information a little bit differently. Yeah, so it gives us kind of like a multifocal perspective on many, uh, on like different issues that we have. So it can be very useful in the sense of like just expanding the possibility of what the world can be like for people, right? Particularly for people who have like a narrower, a narrower vision of what the world is like, people who have maybe, um, you know, grew up in very restrictive households or very mm -hmm. strict, uh, metaphysical doctrines and then psychedelics can oftentimes kind of like break through that programming and allow people to see a wider picture of the world so like oh maybe there's more to it than i thought and that awareness of maybe there's more to it than i thought is already very healing for people because mm -hmm. it provides a much wider framework to work with in trying to solve problems or eliciting growth and so on and so forth mm -hmm. um one very important aspect of ayahuasca is that ayahuasca is embedded within the cosmologies and worldviews of Amazonian people, mm -hmm. which are very different than the ones that we have in the West. And I think this is what I started to say beforehand, and now we come full circle to it. Because in the West, we have obviously a very materialistic worldview. Yeah, our world is made of atoms and whatever we call spirit is relegated to a second plane, if at all. Yeah, our world is made of atoms, made of objects, everything has to be tangible, evidence-based, and there's nothing wrong with that, yeah, except oftentimes it misses the subtler aspects of phenomenology, which is like the human experience, because most of us do have an intuition, yeah, that there's something beyond just matter to some extent. Mm -hmm. In Amazonian cultures, that's a given yeah, because Amazonian cultures are not necessarily, they don't necessarily subscribe to materialistic ontologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Their ontologies are based on spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, an, in the Amazonian world, everything is spirit. So humans are spirit, but also animals are spirit. Trees are spirit. Plants are spirit. Rocks are spirit. Rain is spirit. Like everything is spirit. And what that means basically is that everything in this world, human and non-human, shares the same essence. Mm -hmm. 
And what that means is that every quality that humans have, everything else also has, right? So humans, we think of ourselves as being intelligent and being intentional and having agency over the world and feeling emotions uh, and, you know, all of those things. And for Amazonian people, those are qualities that are shared by everybody. There's human people, but there's also non-human people, mm-hmm. right? There's bird people and plant people and tree people, uh, you know, wild hog people. Everybody is people and everybody's intentional. Everybody's intelligent. Mm-hmm. Everybody shares the same thing, right? So I was kind of giving the example of hunting. That when an Amazonian person goes hunting, they're not just bringing meat back to the community. They're literally killing people, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't just kill people. There's a very strict uh, ritual, right? And a lot of rules that go with it. So you have to connect with spirit. And let's say you want to go hunting deer, right? So Mm -hmm. some way you have to communicate with those deer because the assumption is that those deer, that the deer are also people. So -hmm. they're also communicative. They're also intentional. They're also intelligent. You can talk to them. You can communicate. So you go like, hey, deer, you know, like the human community is hungry. We would like to go hunting. Uh, It's very important for us as human community to uh, do this in a reciprocal way. We want to maintain the balance and the harmony. We want to do this right. So we want to ask you, like, how how is spring treating you? You know, are, are your women fertile? Uh, are your offspring thriving? How many deer can we take in order to feed our community, but also ensure that you keep thriving and that your community keeps stable? Mm-hmm. Right. So ayahuasca oftentimes yeah, will function as that bridge between the human world and the non-human world. In the Amazonian cosmologies, the ayahuasca space is that space that allows, um, the, let's say, the shamans, for lack of a better word for this situation, the Amazonian shamans, the opportunity to connect with the spirit world and receive information from the deer, from the trees, from the plants, mm-hmm. yeah, and then share that back with the human community. So there's medical uses, there's community-based uses, there's divination uses, there's um, communication uses, there's all sorts of different uses. The one that really stands out for me, the one that I focus on in my research is the relational aspect of it, which is the thing that we've been speaking about Mm -hmm. this whole time, which is people come to that retreat for the most part feeling like really alienated and lonely and isolated uh, with depression and anxiety and trauma and alone in the world and more often than not through the collective ayahuasca experience through the group dynamics through the facilitation of group activities through the work of the indigenous healers there is something that shifts uh, again in that understanding that they're actually not alone that there is a network of interconnected relationships of which we are all part of. And this is difficult to explain without mm-hmm. like resorting to kind of like new agey, hippie cliches so of we're all one and we're all, but there is something about that experience that oftentimes brings up a knowing. It's not even like a, like a thought or a feeling, but a, know, a deep knowing that we're not alone, yeah. that we are part of something much bigger of interconnected network of beings, which includes us and includes other people, 
but also includes non-human people, the environment, the trees, the rivers, everything is an interconnected network. And that we are responsible for ourselves just as much as we're responsible for everything else. Yeah. And I think this is the main insight. This is the moment where things shift and say, if I really want to be healthy, yeah, if I want to uh, transcend my depression, if I want to be a healthy person, it's not only about me, mm-hmm. it's about everybody else. It's right. about me feeling better as an individual, but me doing my part to help change structures that are violent towards me and towards other people, or mm-hmm. doing my part towards averting ecological catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People think, I mean, when you think about anxiety, you know, like anxiety is not only individual, it also extends out into the world. It's very difficult not to feel anxious in the mm-hmm. times that we live in, you know, where we're seeing the devastation of our life support systems, when we're seeing the ravaging effects that global warming is having all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, when we don't really know what this world is going to look like in a decade or two, or whether the world that we're living our children is even going to be livable. I mean, that's a huge source of anxiety. You know, we cannot gaslight people all the time. It's like, ah, you're just, you know, your, your brain is in balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty, you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, um, well. Yeah. Adam, wow, you have provided such, such insight into the Amazonian world. And I could see how it could be so, so healing this interconnected relationship. Um, we're, we are out of time. So was there anything you'd like to plug before we wrap up today? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I have a new project that is called Healing from Healing. It's, mm-hmm. you, can find, you can find our group on Facebook, on Instagram, and also the different uh, social media platforms, which is mm-hmm. an attempt to bring down the insights and the research from the work that I've been doing. I mean, the main thing is I don't, I never, my main intention was never to just produce something uh, for academia that doesn't really have the reach yeah. of actually impacting life. So I'm trying to kind of distill the insights and some of the results of that into a wider platform that can be available to people. And I mean, we just started that three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and it's already like growing really, really quickly. So right. yeah, healing from healing. I awesome. invite awesome. you all to, to check it out. Yeah, definitely check it out. We'll put links in the description. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. Yes, yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Happy Talks with Dr. Allison Donovan. We hope you got something of value to help bring a little more happiness into your life. What lesson or takeaway did you get from today's episode? For more tips and tools, be sure to check out my website at dralicefong.com and you can find me on my social media handles at dralicefong. You can find me at howtohappy.com and follow me on my social media handles at howtohappy. Catch you next time. time.